from app.com, it's time to talk college hoops in the Garden State. Welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. And welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot. We're talking college hoops in the Garden State. Ryan Ross here with Jerry Carino, Steve Edelson, and Chris Eisman. Welcome to episode six of our season. A lot to get through. A great episode we have planned for you today. Brad Wachtel will join us in just a few moments. Jerry and Steve caught up with him the other day. He's our bracketology expert. Where do the New Jersey teams fall in the tournament? Where are the teams are on the outside looking in? What do they need to do to boost their resume? Brad gets into it all. You do not want to miss that interview. At the top of the show, we're recapping some of what happened past week, as well as some topics that we want to get into. Seton Hall, they lose to St. John's and Marquette. Rutgers splits with a win over Nebraska and a loss to Maryland. Monmouth with wins, a win over Canisius, lost to Niagara. Princeton, they lose to Yale. St. Peter's, the win over Marist and Manhattan, and a loss to Iona. As we look into this week and look back at what happened last week, Jerry, one thing we want to talk about at the top has to do with booing college athletes. This is something that came up with Saint, uh, with Seton Hall. It's a topic that you've been, uh, you've been researching a little bit and getting reaction to. Where do we stand on this, and how did this issue come up? So to give you the quick background on this, Seton Hall – uh, they they lost to St. John's Monday. They got routed at home, had a bad game. Seton Hall's playing without their best player. Bryce Aiken has a concussion, okay? So St. John's pressures their guards, melts them down, wins big, and Walsh Jim Monday. And then on Wednesday, again, playing without Bryce Aiken, Seton Hall falls, 20, falls down 20 in the first half to Marquette at home, and fans start booing, which to me was absolutely shocking uh, the last time I heard fans booing uh, their own team was in 2016. Seton Hall fans booed uh, the team against Creighton when they got walloped early in that game. And uh, it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. And I want to be very clear about this. There is never a good reason for college fans to boo their own team. You want to boo the refs, fine. You want to boo the visiting team, that's part of sports. But to boo your own team, to treat these athletes like pros, they're not pros, Okay. So they're students, they're college students, uh, and absolutely terrible form to boo them. Now, the booing went on for a little bit in the first half. Uh, Seton Hall did did get attacked together and played better. They still lost the game by 10, but they weren't booed throughout the game. I want to make that clear. It was one or two instances of clear booing, though, and it was really shocking. So uh, I want to tell you, I've been you know debating with fans on Twitter and in discussion with people about this. And I want to just tell you some of the some of the garbage uh, rationale I've received for booing for the booing of Seton Hall or college athletes in general. All right, well, number one, they're paid now; they're like pros. No, that's a myth. Okay, the NIL, the name, image, like likeness, endorsement money. There's not many athletes capitalizing on this. The ones who are, most of them are making pocket change, maybe a few hundred dollars. You know, Jared Roden of Seton Hall has an NIL deal. He recently announced most of their players don't. Uh, but most of these NIL deals are not for big money at all. We're talking in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, so, come on, that's not being a pro. Pros are making millions of dollars. So that's BS. Uh, I pay for a ticket. It's my right to boo. Is it? Is it your right to boo because you pay for a ticket? Do you go to high school games, pay for a ticket, and boo? They charge you to get in high school games. Do you boo 15-year-olds? No, that doesn't mean anything. It just means you're a dope. That's what it means. All right, then there's we were booing the head coach, not the players. Well, you know what? The players are on the court. They don't know the difference. And if you want to boo Kevin Willard, who's totally revived this program and has taken this taken Seton Hall to four 
would have been five NCAA tournaments, made them relevant again because they've had a bad week. All right, I guess you could do that. The guy's making two, three million dollars a year. I wouldn't do it, but it doesn't matter because those players on the court, they don't differentiate that. It's the same garbage Rutgers football fans said when they booed Gary Nova and said it was for Kyle Flood. They booed the quarterback. They said, no, we're booing the coach. No, you're booing everybody, okay? So that's BS. Then the team wasn't giving any effort. And you know what? Seno wasn't playing well. They looked shell-shocked without, without Bryce Aiken in there. All right, they're, they're lead guard, they're alpha dog. So I don't know. Sometimes I think fans confuse effort with focus. Seton Hall played a horribly focused, unfocused game, first half in particular. It happens sometimes. Uh, they had two of those in a row. You know, the other teams played really well. Effort, no effort. I think it's a fine line between effort and focus, whatever. It still doesn't mean you boo. It still doesn't mean you boo. Our, and then there's our standards are high. Well, their standards are high. Are they booing Syracuse in in, uh, in the Carrier Dome? They're having a terrible season. Their standards are higher than Seton Hall's. Do they boo Duke when they lose at home? I know it doesn't happen often. Do they boo them? Their standards are higher. So don't make fools of yourselves and boo college athletes. It's not right, okay? And they're not pros. And you're bad fans if you do that. And that's my rant about that. So hopefully it's just a one-off thing and we don't see it again, but it drives me nuts. And this was that was not the only incident last week of booing. Louisville got booed off the court in a loss to Notre Dame. So, it, again, it is bad. And let's remember this. There's also the added layer of COVID in this time that these guys, these young athletes who have really been for the last two-plus years serving as the country's entertainment, that's a lot of pressure on them having to stay safe. And it, it's been tough this season. They've all had shutdowns. So you, you're going to boo them as they've gone through all of this? That makes no sense. It's bad enough with all the crap and nonsense that they have to deal with on social media from you know people who don't have the courage to even you know give their real names and real profile pictures. They have to take all that anonymous nonsense. You know, Don't do it in person. That's just that's low class. And I think it comes from, like Jerry mentioned, a place of frustration. The fans are frustrated to see their team not performing to what they expect. But they are amateur athletes. at the end. They are college athletes. They are 19 years old in a lot of cases. I think that's where you draw the line. Professional sports, if you want to go boo professional athletes, well, there's a debate that could be had about that. No, as well, you can but... boo pros. Boo, you can boo pros all you want. That's part, that's part of the trade-off for choosing the profession and making millions of dollars. I have no problem with that. We're not that I'm not going to be that soft. <laughs> but you got to differentiate between pros making millions and right. college athletes who are on scholarship, maybe making a couple hundred bucks in an NIL deal. And here's the thing. Any athlete, any Division One athlete knows when they're playing poorly. This, this isn't news to them. The, when they're on the court and they know things aren't going their way, you booing from the crowd isn't going to be some sort of wake-up call to any athlete. Now, sure, you can boo the pro, pro athletes, whatever, but I get it. I get it's from a place of frustration when fans do it. There are far worse ways, as Chris got into, that fans could express that frustration. So at the surface level, I guess booing isn't that bad, but it is college athletes, and that's, I think, where, like you said, Jerry, that the line has to be drawn. And I, love, I want to say, just as a caveat, like Seton Hall fans are great. They're passionate. They're loyal. Okay, I know these people. I've been among these people for decades. Um, and and the, and it's not all fans who were booing. All right, it's it's a portion of fans, but it was loud enough to notice. So so I I hope that this is a one off, and Seton Hall fans will return to being the great supportive group that they usually are. And as a fan and follower of the Philadelphia sports teams, I am no stranger to booing. So. 
we'll we'll keep an eye on. Let's that not let's not compare Seton Hall fans to Philly sports <laughs> of fans. Of course not. That's a no, low blow. Barry, that no. is a low blow. They're in their saying, own. They're in their own low class. I was booing in the crib when I was a baby. Okay, so I, I've grown up with that. But we'll keep an eye on that, and and we'll see. Obviously, hopefully, hopefully something like that doesn't happen again. Because as you said, Jerry, Seton Hall fans overwhelmingly are supportive and, and and great for their team. So we'll keep an eye on that. As for Rutgers, though, Chris, they get a win at Nebraska. That's a big deal for them. We're going to get more into it with Brad Wachtel, but a win for the Scarlet Knights there. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, it wasn't exactly an easy win, um, but you know, winning on the road in the Big Ten is never easy, no matter if you're playing against a team that's you know tearing it up in the conference or a team like Nebraska that hadn't won a Big Ten game. You know, it's not easy to do. They got a huge lift from Mawat Mag, who came off the bench, provided the spark that they needed. Um, and you know, finished with 13 points and seven rebounds. Just a, just the type of game that Rutgers really needed. And and you know, if Rutgers had lost that game, I mean, listen, they face an uphill climb, and it's going to be you know a challenge just to get you know back into the the bubble picture, really. But uh, if they had lost that game, I mean, you could have you probably could have sealed their hopes up. It wasn't happening, so they kept things alive uh, by winning that. It doesn't do a ton, but you know, in the net in terms of uh, you know where they are, but. Listen, they had to get that win. There's no question. It wasn't easy, but they got it done. It was a road win, and especially after losing to Maryland early in the week in a, in a really bad game all around, um, you know they needed that win at Nebraska. It was damage control. It's not going to help Rutgers' resume, but it prevents an enormous dent. Nebraska is not very good. Fred Hoiberg's done a terrible job. He comes in, he cleans out the roster, runs everybody out, brings in his own people. They're they're brutal to watch. They can't hold the lead, and you know, good for Rutgers. They got it done. I just want to highlight Mawat Mag who has been through hell. He's had so many surgeries on his mouth, he lost count. And for him to have 13-7 and seven off the bench and to defend uh, Nebraska's one-star player, uh, really terrific down the stretch, and then really hardly get recognized by the Big Ten Network crew. Are you kidding me? I mean, the, the, the game ends. They interview Geo Baker. Geo's been, been, been good a thousand times. Why don't you highlight someone different? They didn't even mention him when they were wrapping up and saying who the what the keys were for Rutgers. They didn't even mention Mawat Mag. I mean, pay attention, dudes. Anyway, we're going to mention Mawat Mag. Great job for him by him. Really gritty performance. And you know what? Sometimes you need whole hands on deck, and he was those hands for Rutgers. And as we said too, Mammoth, they split with the Western New York school, St. Peter's with two wins. They can't get over that Iona hump though. And Princeton, the win streak snapped against the team right next to them in standings, uh, Yale. Beats the Tigers this past week. We're going to talk more about Princeton after we hear from Brad Wachtel. Let's bring in Brad Wachtel now. As I said, Jerry and Steve caught up with him the other day. Had a great conversation. Bracketology, where our teams in New Jersey stand, what they need to do to improve their standing in the tournament. Brad breaks it all down. And, of course, it's always nice to have another East Brunswick guy on the show. Let's listen in on Jerry and Steve's chat with Brad Wachtel. Our guest this week on the Jersey Jump Shot podcast is not a bracketologist, the bracketologist in my eyes, New Jersey's leading NCAA tournament prognosticator, Brad Wachtel, East Brunswick native, Jersey lifer, has a background in college basketball, working on on the staff at Rutgers University for a couple different regimes, right, Brad? That's correct. Yeah, I was a manager under Gary Waters. I was uh, working for Mike Rice, and I worked for Eddie Jordan as well. Brad now has carved out a tremendous reputation as a leading bracketologist. Uh, There's a site that ranks these guys, these bracketologists, and Brad is continually ranked in the top 10, at times the top five, and you've even been number one at times, right, Brad? 
I have been number one. And, you know, I started doing my bracketology way back in 2006, right after I graduated from from uh, Rutgers. Um, and my first three years of doing it, I was actually number one in the country. And then obviously I took a hiatus because I went to go work at Rutgers. So I wasn't doing my bracketology there. Um, I wish I, if I, if I had continued doing it, I would definitely be, I would probably be a top, top two, top three, which I'm proud about. So factsandbracks.blogspot.com is where you can find uh, Brad's work. It updates regularly, more often as the season gets closer to Selection Sunday. Forget about Lunardi, forget about Palm. Facts and Bracks is where you want to go. So Brad, while we have you, a bunch of questions. I have questions that only you can answer. Let's start with Rutgers coming off a, a win, a squeaker at Nebraska last night, uh, their second road win of the season. And, uh, you know, wh where is where does Rutgers stand right now? Um, what, you know, I noticed that they'd only, their, their net only moved up one spot today from 112 to 111. So we could start with why uh, that happened and what really is the task facing Rutgers over these last five or six weeks? Yeah, well, well first of all, there's a lot of different factors that go into the net. Uh, we don't know the exact formula, which we say every single year. Um, but just because you get a win on the road doesn't mean you're going to go up significantly. You know, first of all, Nebraska is rated pretty low in the net. It is it is just a Q3 win, Q3 win. But at the same time, yesterday, Maryland lost at home to Indiana. Uh, you know, Michigan lost, Lafayette lost, DePaul lost. These are teams that Rutgers lost to. Um, so those play a role in, in where their net goes as well. Um, right. and yeah, they do have a significant hill to climb. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the one good thing and that the one thing that the big 10 brings is opportunities. So their schedule in February is loaded with opportunities, which is good and bad because they have the, the chance to really get back into the mix for an NCAA bid, you know, but you know, one bad week and you're really you could get you could start to reel for sure um so they do have a ways to go but there's definitely a chance all right so Rutgers is six and four in the big 10 through the first 10 games they have 10 more conference regular season games to go eight of those games at the moment are quad ones eight of them are quad ones eight I mean my goodness you were right about opportunity Brad so over those final 10 games I know it's hard to project you don't know what the scores are going to be where the wins are going to come but over those final 10 games Roughly how many do you think Rutgers has to win to, to climb into the NCAA tournament picture? I think to get into the picture, they're probably going to need five. Uh, I think to have a legitimate shot to get in, they're probably going to need six. Okay. Uh, now, the one thing that is definitely in their favor is, you know, I just started going through my, my brackets uh, this morning, my seedings and everything. You know, the top six or seven seeds are pretty solid. But after that, the bubble is really soft. So there's there's chances for a lot of teams that are, aren't even being mentioned right now to get into the mix. Uh, so yeah, I think if they can get to 12 and eight in league play, that means they're going to be getting some more significant wins. And I think that would give them a pretty good shot to get in. Now there are three bad losses is a problem. So if you're going to have that many bad losses in Q3 and Q4 uh, against Q3 and Q4 opponents, you better have significant wins, and the, the chances are there. And that, that's really all you could ask for at this point. That kind of leads into my next question, that is how much does, is Rutgers' non-conference schedule you know, weighing it down? Uh, and by the same token, how much is Seton Hall's non-conference schedule keeping it afloat? It seems to be a tale of two non-conferences as it pertains to the net. 
No question. I mean, if you look at Rutgers' non-conference schedule, they're around 300. Uh, Seton Hall, on the other hand, has a top 15 non-conference. Uh, actually, no, I think it's a like top 30 non-conference strength of schedule, but right. a top 15 overall strength of schedule. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a bit of an issue. Um, now, obviously, Rutgers also lost to some of those teams that they played, and I think right. they're the way that they've scheduled a non-conference. I get it. You know, I get what they're doing. They want. They don't want to lose games. They want to win games. They know they have plenty of opportunities in Big Ten play. The problem is, is if you if you slip up in one of those games, uh, it's it's an issue, and that's where they they're at right now. Um, Rutgers has not really been in a in a true tournament um, over the last few years. They've been in tournaments where they just get home games, um, but they they're never going away from home. They're never you know having neutral site games, which is another way to pick up wins that could improve your net um, and, and put you in, in good shape and also give you the experience before you get into conference play to learn how to play away from home because we know jersey mike's arena aka the rack is a huge huge advantage uh so and in terms of seton hall yeah they're they're a battle-tested team and even though they've they've been in a schneid lately and they're three and six in the league they still they're still okay. They, they're still okay. They're still in the field. Um, and as a result, their net is still 41, which is, which is fine. Um, and I think the way they schedule was, was wise. Um, and if you are able to, if you know that your team has a chance to be an NCAA tournament team, it is wise to schedule well non-conference. All right, so I have a couple more quick questions for you, Rutgers, Seton Hall, and then Steve. Steve's going to handle our mid-major line of questioning. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Uh, but, Brad, going back to uh, – well, well, so Rutgers, real quick, it sounds like if, if Steve Peichel were to seek, you know, analytics advice on building a non-conference schedule, your advice might be, you know, get in a feast week tournament, play some of those early games away from home against high-major competitions. Is that a fair summary? That's fair, but not only that. Don't play the Lafayette's of the world. You know, Lafayette's picked to finish towards the bottom of their league. You know, a lot of these teams that they've played are not low major teams that are going to win their leagues. You can beat, if you're an NCAA team and you feel you're an NCAA team, and he said going into this season, this is his best team ever, you should be playing the top teams of the lower tier conferences. Like because Seton Hall, for example, they played Wagner. They beat Wagner, and then they're reaping some benefits from that, right? Because Wagner's won 12 straight games. They're the best team in the Northeast Conference. Is that kind of what, what you're getting at there? Exactly. I mean, Wagner is top 75, top 80 in the net right now. Uh, and, yeah, you want to play teams that, that are going to be good because that's going to help your net. And even if – it may not even be in terms of helping you get into the tournament, but it could help you with seeding. So those are things you want to do, and – that's something that they definitely need to improve on. All right, good. So now I have some quick Seton Hall questions. Uh, let's start with, you know, Seton Hall now is three and six in, in the Big East, but their net is forty-one, which isn't bad. Uh, they're in the they're in the picture. Uh, but for Seton Hall, how, let's start with the task at hand. How significant is Tuesday's game at Georgetown? It is significant because you want to avoid another bad loss. You know, they have one bad loss right now. That's St. John's at home. That's their only bad loss of the season. So once you get to two, you better have some significant wins on your resume. Um, and, you know, they have some good wins. Uh, UConn and Texas are, are very good wins. The at Michigan game is one of those games where it was great at the beginning of the season. Now it's a good win. How good is it going to be? And that's going to depend on how well uh, – Michigan plays the rest of the season. Imagine Seton Hall fans rooting for Michigan the next five weeks. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's what they should be doing. You always want to root for teams that you beat. All right. Now, Seton Hall, uh, assuming they get to 10 and 10 in the Big East, Brad, which I think they can, and that means holding serve at home, you know, which means avoiding any of the bad losses like when the DePauls and the Butlers come in uh, and Georgetown. Uh, beating, let's say they beat Georgetown, hold serve at home, win their home games, and then take one more road game. It would be, it would have to be like an at Xavier, uh, at uh, Creighton, or at Villanova or UConn. Get one of those. Get to ten and ten in the Big East. What are their chances of getting into the field? They'll be in. They'll be in if they get to ten wins, and if they win one of those road games, they'll be in. Um, All right. I think. I think nine wins puts them in play. Um, it's a lot, you know, will be out of their hands because it's going to depend on, you know, all these other, all the other bubble teams around them. But I think, uh, I think 10 win- wins will get them in. All right. There you go. The man has spoken. Steve, I know you have some questions you want to ask Brad. Well, Brad, it's interesting because I think one of the biggest mid-major stories in the area is also a big one nationally. And that's Iona and, and coach Rick Patino. Um, you know, if things continue along on their trajectory now, how how high can they get? Can they get to an eight nine game? Can they? Where can Iona be in the tournament? Assuming they're there, yeah. Assuming they win out and win the MAC tournament, I think an eight nine it might be a bit of a stretch. Um, I envision them probably closer to a ten, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I think a lot for for their sake will also hinge on how their top win performs, and that's Alabama. Alabama is a team that has shown that they can beat anybody in the country they have some unbelievable wins so i think if alabama plays really well down the strength stretch and you know even wins the sec tournament or advances far um i that's only going to help iona seed well let's just say they play like they're playing right now and then lose in the mac final can they be an at-large i think they can be um i i won't say that they will be but i think they can be and i think it's going to depend on uh, all the other bubble teams and, and their results. It, it, it's going to be difficult in my mind because all these other high major teams have opportunities. Iona has no more opportunities to really, really, you know, move the needle. Uh, so that's their issue. But if they're going undefeated in conference play, the committee will value that. Uh, that that will be strong. No, knowing that they have a win on Al- against Alabama to top that, um, they will be in play for a bid. Um, it'll come down to the wire but they will be in the mix. Is there a Patino factor in all of that? No, I don't think there's a Patino factor. You know, everybody likes to think that, mm-hmm. but I think the committee really does. They look at the resume, you know, do they look at the the team? Sure. They look at the team and maybe that's going to affect a team seed by one or two. It happens. Um, but, you know, Duke missed the NCAA tournament last year. You know, the, the names don't get you in anymore. I could see a Patino factor when they draw a matchup, though. You know, they could once they get the seed line, I could see them matching up Patino with somebody who he has some sort of past or history with. You know, a, another interesting thing here at the Jersey Shore, Mammoth going to the CAA next year. Um, Mammoth hasn't been in the tournament in 16 years. It'll most likely be 17, given the Iona factor. How how does that impact Mammoth going to a higher league and and – improving perhaps their chances of getting to an NCAA tournament? Yeah, I think it, I think it could, imp- I mean, does it improve their chances? I think the CAA is obviously a little bit of a step above the Mac. I think it's a, it's a nice transition and a nice move for Monmouth. Um, but anytime a team moves into a new conference, there's just typically an adjustment period. You haven't played those teams. You don't know their styles. 
Uh, so I think it, it could take time, but I think Monmouth is going to be a great fit. Um, and yeah, I can see them towards the top of that league in, in a couple of years. And, you know, does it, would it change a potential seed? Does the CAA typically get a better seed than the MAC? Varies. I would say yes, possibly one seed above. Um, but for the most part, you know, they're still in a, a similar range. Um, and it's still hard to get in that large bid from a league like that. Right. Team like Princeton, you know, which ha- had a nice run, a uh, long winning streak, has some high major wins. What, what do you think about them and, and, and their prospects and possible seed? Yeah, right now, I would say if Princeton were to win the Ivy League tournament, they're on the border of a 14 or a 15 seed. Um, you know, I think winning winning out probably pushes them to a 14 seed. But a lot of the time when you're dealing with these low major schools that win their leagues, it depends on who is winning their conference tournaments. Because if a lot of teams that were not at the top of their league are winning their tournaments, that's going to help Princeton. And if it's the opposite, if teams at the top of their league are winning their leagues, league tournaments, you know, then Princeton will be probably closer to a 15 seed. So a lot can change um, from now until, you know, obviously the end of the season. Well, I'm surprised, uh, but I, I, I thought they'd be higher, but you know, you're the, you're the expert. How about if Monmouth or St. Peter's wins the max somehow, we also looking at like a 14 seed for them. Could they I get higher Monmouth, than that? I think Monmouth is more of a 14 seed. Uh, I think St. Peter's would probably be more of a 15 seed. Uh, St. Peter's net right now is in the one sixties, which is significantly worse than, than uh, Monmouth, which is, you know, about 107 at the moment. Well, you know, cause I think for sure, Monmouth a win at Cincinnati, um, you know, the win at Towson looks better and better with each passing week. The win at Yale looks good. Um, so Monmouth has some, some pretty good wins on its resume this year. And, uh, you know, they have a couple of losses they, they would want back, but but I think overall their resume is pretty good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's why they would get a better seed. And I think, you know, in terms of Princeton, Jerry, like you had mentioned, you thought they were better. There's still room to improve. Their neck can still improve. The Ivy League is a good league. Um, but I don't see them getting – I see them as a, probably as a 14 at best. I mean, realistically, right now – they're 14 seed. All right. Well, that's why we have you on. And it's not just me yammering on. I one one more question for you, Brad. Just a philosophical opinion question for you. Our friend John Rothstein proposed this idea over the weekend that the first four be turned into sort of a bubble team showcase with the bubble team sort of playing off in a almost a play-in fashion. And then the low majors um, who who we have seen play on that first in that first four, that they get a buy directly into the round of 64. What do, what do you think of that idea? I love it. I really do. Um, first of all, over the years, the bubble has been soft. So why are we rewarding those teams to rewarding those teams to get into the actual bracket? Um, I feel like it's such a when low major teams win their conference tournaments, it's such a big deal. And I think to force a couple of teams to play on that first day, it's almost like they're not even part of the tournament. Um, and the, and some of these guys will never get a chance to experience it. And I think those guys deserve to be in the bracket. Um, and I think it would also make for an exciting first two days of the NCAA tournament. The tournament would be starting on that Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, and the matchups would be awesome. Um, I think it's a, a really good idea. Um, and I would love to see the committee uh, go that route. Hmm, well, the flip, on, ahead, on the flip side of that is – that is one of the only chances a team like Mammoth, who won a playing game, is going to get 
to ever win an NC a game in an NCAA tournament. So I think there's that too that you're kind of taking that away from those teams. You know that chance to actually win a game in the postseason. Like that. right, we know it was a really big deal when FDU you know won their playing game. That was an enormous deal for them. Instead of them just going and getting you know annihilated by Duke. And I I do hear what you're saying, Brad. And I think it would make for for great theater. The flip side of me though, it sees both sides of it. You know, it is an interesting question. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. There's, as you say, Steve and Jerry, there's positive and negatives to both. Um, but, you know, I mean, right now we don't see anything changing anytime soon. All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about for the next five weeks. There's a lot to watch. Brad will be watching, will be watching, and we will reconnect with him before Selection Sunday. Factsandbracks.blogspot.com. Uh, Brad Wachtel, W-A-C-H-T-E-L. Look out for him. Watch his projections. We'll be doing the same. Brad, thank you so much, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. And thanks again to Brad for stopping by the show. Great knowledge there, Jerry, breaking down where our New Jersey schools stand and, and what some of these schools need to do to maybe even increase their seating come tournament time. So two things about that. One is I just want to make a quick correction. I think I had mentioned that uh, – that Seton Hall, uh, if they get to ten and ten, uh, is that would that be good enough? And really, the reality is, it's probably be ten and nine because Seton Hall is probably not going to make up the Providence game. Uh, so you know, Brad said ten and nine, no problem for Seton Hall. He said uh, nine and ten, you know, nine wins, which would be nine and ten, should probably get Seton Hall in. So that's the kind of cushion they've built up. And I think the thing that jumped out at me most about that, and Steve could address what what Brad said about the mid majors, but. But the thing that jumped out to me most about what he said about, about Seton Hall is that compared to Rutgers is that, you know, Seton Hall got the bounce from not just playing high majors and getting good wins, high-quality wins, but because they scheduled the right low majors. They beat Wagner, a team that's won 12 straight games and is winning the Northeast Conference. So they the, the, the buy games, the guarantee games they scheduled were much more competitive teams than what Rutgers scheduled. You know, Rutgers scheduled teams that were bad in the low major leagues, and they're paying a price for that. So there's a lesson learned there. I never thought of that, but Seton Hall beating Wagner is a beating Yale. These are wins that are paying off that are almost as important in the net as their high major wins. And so Rutgers doesn't schedule these teams. They're scheduling the dregs of low major conferences. And that's something that you heard Brad said he'd like to see change with Steve Peichel. And on the converse side of that, I think what you learned from Brad Wachtel was that the MAC teams by scheduling up are going to have a higher seed, whoever that is in the NCAA tournament because of the, 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 the non-conference schedules they've had. So whether it's Iona or Monmouth or whoever, um, it's not going to be a 16 seed. And in fact, in Iona's case, could be as high as a 10, maybe a nine. So I think that's interesting. Absolutely. Scheduling matters. That's what we learned there from Brad and, and great breakdown from him and, and great uh, analysis from Brad Wachtel. Jerry gave all of his credentials. Be sure to go follow him. Always nice to talk to him. As for the week ahead, uh, we got into it a little bit, Jerry, there with your talk with uh, Brad Seton Hall. They have Georgetown Wednesday and Creighton on Friday, an opportunity to, to kind of take care of business here for the Pirates and, and right the uh, ship after two losses this past week. Yeah, Tuesday at Georgetown. Uh, and it is that's a game that Seton Hall really needs to win. You know, it's similar to Nebraska with the Rutgers. It's a resume killer if you lose. Georgetown has no – unlike Nebraska, Georgetown has no fans attending their games. This should be, you know, a, a game that if Bryce Aiken comes back, we think he will. We don't know. Concussions are, you know, a hard thing to assess from the outside. Uh, 
But either way, this is a game Seton Hall has to win, and I expect them to win. And then Creighton at home. You know, Creighton is a is a Jekyll and Hyde team. That, in a, similar to Rutgers, maybe a little higher level, but Creighton is so much better at home. They shoot so much better at home than on the road. And so you're getting Creighton at home on Friday. Should be an advantage for the Hall. Uh, this has to be – it has it should be a two and a week for them, and that should reset them on the path. They're already in the NCAA tournament, but it should it should push them away from the ledge a little bit. And you just want to see Bryce Aiken return. You don't want to see the kid's been through so many injuries. He's been hurt seven times in the year and a half he's been at Seton Hall. You just want to see him out there and playing. And I do believe that'll make a big difference when you have your alpha dog back. And as for the Scarlet Knights, Chris, uh, an opportunity at home Saturday against Michigan State. Before they do that, they have Northwestern to take care of. Yeah, it's another big opportunity to go back on the road and, and pick up another needed win. Listen, Northwestern's probably better than the record would indicate. You know, they've had some really close losses. That's kind of been a theme over the course of the season. Uh, they lost four in a row, but they've lost their last two games against Michigan and Illinois by a combined five points. So, you know, they're they're probably a tougher team, like, like I said, than the, the record might show. But again, I think that they're beatable. Rutgers just has to play the type of defense that it's capable of playing. And obviously, as we've seen, they've been a bit inconsistent on that end. You know, you look at the game against Iowa, they played about as well as can be. And then they've had some other games, you know, last week against Maryland where they just didn't play well uh, defensively. So they need to bring the type of defensive effort, um, you know, that that we've all seen that they're capable of playing. So, again, that's another big opportunity. And then, yeah, at Saturday, you know, back at Jersey Mike's Arena, you know, they're going to need that home environment to pick up a win against a really good team. And, and now this is where the gauntlet starts, right? We've been talking about this for a while now, that this month of February is going to be very, very challenging. It's it's quality big good big 10 team after another starting with that michigan state and uh you know listen the spartans are playing well you know they're, they're they shoot they're one of the best shooting teams in the big 10 they defend the three-point line so it's not going to be an easy win but Rutgers is going to have to try and find, figure out a way to get a victory and that's going to kind of become a, a constant theme over the next uh you know nine games or so it's just going up against these tough teams and going to have to find a way to pick up some wins and and so especially at home you know the, these are big opportunities so it's another big week for Rutgers. Eight straight quad one games for Rutgers after the trip to Northwestern, which is a quad two. Yeah, it's a tough one. Make or break time for the Scarlet Knights and, and some opportunities at home. They play so well at home, an opportunity here and there to steal some wins against some some really quality opponents coming in. And then they got to win, like you said, Chris, on the road. They have to take care of business against beatable teams on the road for the Scarlet Knights. As for our mid-majors in New Jersey, Monmouth, they have Fairfield and Quinnipiac coming up. St. Peter's also with Quinnipiac and Marist. Uh, Princeton, they have the New York swing, Cornell and Columbia. Steve, uh, what's going on in the MAC? Monmouth. Uh, trying to get back uh, in the win column again. Yeah, listen, Mom is playing the long game right now, right? On Sunday, they lost by a point in overtime to Niagara, but they sat Shavar Reynolds, who's had a, a sore shoulder. They want to they want to give him a little bit of a break. If he plays, they win that game. Um, listen, Iona's going to win the MAC, right? They're ten and zero. Um, what you need to do right now is you need to get one of the top five spots in the MAC tournament. That's a first round buy, preferably the second or third seed. Then you don't have to play Iona until the final. But that's what this is all about now. Uh, and so for Monmouth, resting Shavar was the right move. Hopefully, it, it appears he'll be back against Fairfield on Friday. Um, that, you know, that's what they have to do right now. It, speaking of Iona, they handled St. Peter's pretty pretty handily on Sunday. Uh, St. Peter's had the halftime lead, but Iona just took over in the second half. Um, so it is what it is. I mean, I mean Iona's going to win the league. Patino got his 800th win. It was a big deal there. 
Um, but St. Peter's, listen, they've got Quinnipiac and Marist at home coming up. Those are big games. Win those, and they're really putting themselves in position to finish second in the league. Uh, so I, I think they're in pretty good shape right now. And as for Princeton, I know, Jerry, you wanted to touch on them. You, you were there for uh, the Yale game this past week when the win streak was snapped. They'll be away from home with Cornell and Columbia, but uh, something you wanted to touch on with the Tigers. Well, I, I, I saw Princeton Saturday. I, I like to see all of New Jersey's teams in person at least once. I've seen seven of the eight. I didn't see. I won't see Ryder because their game against Rutgers was canceled. But uh, Princeton's good. They're good. Yale, Yale played a great game. They're the two best teams in the Ivy League. They're probably going to play three times. I wouldn't be surprised if they play in the Ivy League final in March in the tournament final. Uh, Princeton has a terrific point guard in Jalen Llewellyn who scored 23 points against Yale. He could play for any team just about. He could certainly help Rutgers or Seton Hall. He's that good. Uh, And then they have two good shooters on the wings, and they have a really good center. So Princeton's good. Uh, The one thing I wanted to point out, and and again, with Princeton losing to Yale at home, I mean, they're going to be – you know, Princeton's going to finish in the top two in the Ivy League. Like I said, this is similar with the Mac. You're just jockeying for position. Uh, but I, I think Princeton, I want to say this. If Princeton wins the Ivy League, they could give somebody a scare in March. They could. I could see them as a 14 or 13 or even maybe a 15. I think 14 is probably right for them. As Brad pointed out, I got to take his word for it. I could see them with their shooters giving somebody a scare. Okay. One thing I wanted to point out, I wrote about this today in my column. Uh, is that Princeton University was has been severely restricting fans who can attend. It's only been members of the com- campus community. They just broaden that a little bit to include friend, uh, family members of players and coaches. And Princeton draws 3,000-plus people for their Ivy League games typically. They've only been getting 50, 100 people. They had 240 for the game against Yale, and they were they were thrilled with that. But I just want to speak up on behalf of the other Princeton athletes. It's wrong. It's wrong what the university is doing. I mean, come on. Everybody else, you go to a rec league game. You go to a high school game. There's regular crowds. Okay, people got to wear masks and they got to show vax cards. That's what it is now. But enough with the restricting the crowd sizes. That's that's not where it's at anymore. The rest of the world has moved on. Even Harvard has moved on. Harvard, the kings have shut it down, are now allowing full fan attendance. Come on, Princeton. So I expect that to change within the next day or two. They said they were going to, they were going to revisit the policy for February, but it's a shame. They made these, these players sit out a full year last year. I know, I know Princeton, these Ivy league schools, Princeton prides itself on, you know, we don't treat athletes any differently, but don't treat them unfairly. Okay. Don't treat them unfairly. The campus is opening up time to open up your arena. There you go. As Jerry said, that's his column, so be sure to read that on app.com and northjersey.com. Of course, read Chris and Steve's reporting on college basketball as well on those sites. And thank you for listening to Jersey Jump Shot Episode 6. Again, thanks to Brad Wachtel for stopping by the show. Be sure to tell your friends if you like what you hear and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. For Jerry, for Chris, for Steve, I'm Ryan. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Jersey Jump Shot. Jersey Jump Shot is a production of the Asbury Park Press and USA Today Network. Subscribe at app.com.